0: Thank you. It was such a privilege. So Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? And then he says in Matthew 18, he says, where two or three are gathered together, there I am. And I feel he's here, right? In fact, I don't have to feel it. I can just state it because Jesus said it's true. So I trust Jesus, so he's here. Which is interesting. He says, when two or three are gathered together, there I am. But that's not to say when you're lonely and by yourself, I don't show up. That's not to say the opposite is true. It's not to say when you're by yourself, you don't have Jesus, but there, we have to wrestle with the fact that there is some experience of Jesus, some presence of Jesus, some seeing of Jesus that is amplified when more than one person gathers together in his name. And so he's with us when we're by ourselves, but he is with us when we are together. And then I think, because Jesus so cares about the unity of the body of Christ and prays about this in John 17, that when those two or three who are gathered together, are two or three from different churches? Whoa! So there's something that we get to do at events like this that we are not even able to do on our Sunday mornings. I mean, and and so when we do this, we can go back to our Sunday morning experience and remember, I have brothers and sisters over there. I have brothers and sisters over there. We can pray for each other, we can cheer for each other, because Jesus is at both our churches, but then when our churches come together, and we're different, we come from different traditions, different styles, different tribes, but we're one family. So there's something about this, coming together like this, I think, that gives Jesus glory in a way that is pretty special. And I, I sense his joy. Well, thank you. Thank you for organizing this and for showing up for this and giving us a chance. So, yes, I'm Bruxy. Uh, I'm, so, I'm pastor of a church called The Meeting House, which is, it comes from a different tribe, an Anabaptist tribe. We're like Mennonites, minus the horse and buggy. We're urban-dwelling Amish. We are. We come from a, a interesting wing or tree or branch from the Christian family tree that's just... Uh, you know, very different, and yet that's so beautiful. When people who are very different, and our church services might feel different, might progress differently, but when Jesus unites together people who are different, it not only helps us see Jesus better, helps us experience Jesus better, and makes Him happy. It also becomes a kind of uh, apologetic, a kind of evangelism, evidence to non-Christians. Because it seems to me that any non-Christian can get along with another non-Christian as long as they agree about everything. And as long as they like the same music and the same style of things, they get along just fine. There's part of the same subculture, and different groups of people have different subcultures, but when Christians who belong to different subcultures, different ways of doing things, maybe we like different styles of music, maybe our church structures are a little bit different, then we come together, we're bearing evidence that there's a greater miracle happening. This is a sociological miracle. Yeah. Yeah, right, and that the early church is very in line with what the early church was going through, where you had you had kosher Jews and you had Roman soldiers and and Greek slaves, and they were all showing up at the same church together, coming out of completely different backgrounds. And Jesus united them. Beyond that, they didn't know what they agreed on, and they had to figure it out together. And a lot of the first century was about kind of ironing out what they did believe. And there were disagreements about the roles of different of the Torah in their lives, and and. And yet, they were able to iron that out and even work through their disagreements together as family because Jesus was at the center of it all. So that's a testimony to the power of the cross, right? But uh, a Hindu gets along with another Hindu and a, a Republican gets along with another Republican and a Muslim gets along with another Muslim on a good day and people who like country music get along with other country music people. And But when we are different and we don't have a lot in common and yet we start behaving like family, boom, right? Then we say, what? what is the adhesive that holds you together, right? That's Jesus manifest through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's beautiful. Uh, So I'm just really grateful that I get to experience this. This is so lovely. Uh, So what I would love to do is, for the next few minutes, or actually for each session that I have, I think I'm with you this afternoon and then twice tomorrow, right? Um, is just talk about the gospel and different aspects of the gospel with us and how we can be the gospel and then also share the gospel. We wanna first be the gospel then we wanna share it. And I wanna first say, I don't know if we have the first slide, if if at the end of my time with you you have any questions that we haven't had a chance to iron out here, please get in touch. I've just put up everything I can for social media because uh, I'd love to turn this monologue into dialogue and I'm pretty accessible online and so as questions arise, if I do happen to uh, plant any seeds that raise questions, then just get in touch with me. Um, Also, I wanna encourage you, here's a conference pro tip. It works for conferences, it works for church on Sunday morning and everything else. Um, And that would be what this next slide talks about, is that as you listen and learn, um, take away what you're learning here and see if you can find one other person to talk to about it. One other person that you can explain what you're learning. When you explain and you talk about what you're learning with one other person, what you are learning will go deeper down inside of you. It won't only get passed on to someone else, but there is something about a part of our brain that we activate when we have to not only just passively accept and absorb, but when we have to form our own words around it and try and get our mind to wake up and find the right words to communicate it to someone else, that excites a part of our brain that just makes the information go deeper. And so scientists have validated this, I call it the protege effect, and the protege effect uh, aligns with what Seneca, who was a Roman philosopher around the time of Jesus said. He said, when we teach, we learn. When we teach, we learn. And scientists are pointing out that this this thing called the protege effect, they noticed, is when a student tutors a fellow student in their class because the fellow student is struggling with their marks, both of their marks go up. The one getting tutored gets better, but the one doing the tutoring also gets better. That one of the greatest ways we grow in knowledge and in learning as a student is to be a teacher. And the process of communicating makes it dig deeper. Take notes but then have a conversation with somebody else about what you're learning and notice how it goes deeper. That's why I think evangelism is a part of discipleship. Sharing the gospel and growing in the gospel are not two different things. The more we share, the more we talk, and the more people ask us questions, and the more they ask us questions that we don't know the answers to, and we say, ah, that's a great question, I don't know, I'm gonna go back and research that more, the more we're growing as a student of the gospel. And so that's fine, some of us are afraid to talk to people about Jesus because we're afraid that they're gonna ask us questions that we can't answer. What's the matter with that? Why is that a problem? There's all kinds of things in life that people ask us questions about and we don't know. And you know what we say when we don't know? We say, I don't know. And it's not a problem. And so you can talk about it, and someone says, "Oh yeah, well what about dinosaurs? How do dinosaurs fit into this? And you can say, I don't know. In fact, at the Meeting House, one of the things we've encouraged our people to do is when we hit one of those places, try this phrase on, say, I don't know, but one thing I do know is. Okay, I don't know, but one thing I do know is. Let's say that together. I don't know, but one thing I do know is. And so they say, oh yeah, well, if God is so good and he's so much like Jesus, then how come there's so much suffering in the world? And you can say, I don't know, know, but one thing I do know is, and then encourage you to at least share something you do know. One thing I do know is, is that I might not know why they're suffering, but I do know that the God that I worship suffers alongside me. That's what the cross says. If I look at the cross and I say, that's God, then I say, God is a God who's willing to suffer with me. At least I know that much. So it's okay to say, I don't know, and then talk about something you do know. And as you do that, you will grow as a disciple of Jesus. Um, I'll I'll mention this now, too. Uh, The content I'm gonna be talking about comes from my book, Reunion, which is a walk through the gospel, and in this book, we encourage everyone who reads it in this, at least in the study guide, everyone to find a study buddy and as they learn to go talk to their study buddy about what they're learning and to make that part of their discipleship process. Um, But let me ask you a question. How are you? Are you good? I I admit, I'm so glad so many of you are good and then some of you are just staring. (laughs) <laughs> because I realize in a public setting, many of us don't want to say, terrible, but I showed up anyway. But that's okay, some of you are terrible and you showed up anyway. God bless you, I'm glad you're here. Some of you are just kind of neutral, like I'm, I'm, I'm doing it, I'm not digging it, but I'm doing it, I'm here. And some of you are sorting out. I'm actually not really sure how I am and some of you are fantastic and that's, that's great. But I want to encourage you in the love of God for this session as we talk about the gospel. Um, as you, I, could, I could phrase the question this way, uh, as you arrive here today, Do you sense that your glass is half empty or half full? Do you sense your glass is half empty or half full? Uh, And I think it's okay, uh, however you perceive your own emotional experience, Um, but I want to encourage you to know that the, the contents of the glass, whether it's half empty or it's half full, or it's very full or it's very empty, the contents of the glass has nothing to do with how much God loves you. Okay, God's love for you is not the contents of the glass, God's love for you is the glass. God's love just is. It's just there. You can't do anything to diminish or encourage or encourage it or increase it. It's just there. And and now your emotions may be like the contents of the grass, glass. They may go up. They may go down. Um, some it may be cloudy and you can't see straight. Maybe crystal clear. Maybe maybe may toxic and maybe filled with poison. And you need to to get rid of the contents of the glass. But but God's love for you is just there. It's glass and it's bulletproof glass. You can't do anything about it. He just loves you, and so for the next few minutes, I wanna look at scripture and see why this is a good starting point for the gospel. Aretha Franklin, who died recently, she had this great line, she said, when God loves you, what can be better than that? When God loves you, what can be better than that? I love that quote. And so we wanna just focus on God's love for a minute and how that gets portrayed in the gospel. When we read through the Bible, we find out that the gospel is not just the message that people are saved by, it's the message that saved people live by. Right? The gospel is not just the message people get saved by. It's the message saved people live by. So the gospel is always a message we can tell others, but we also need to tell it to ourselves. And we come back to it again and again and again. We do not measure our spiritual maturity by putting distance between myself and the gospel. You know, I already did the prayer thing and I became a Christian, so I've done the gospel thing. Now I'm moving on to other things. That's not spiritual maturity. We just deepen our understanding and our manifestation of the gospel in our own lives. That's spiritual maturity. We should never see the gospel in our rear view mirror. Okay, it's always with us, moving us forward. A couple of scriptures to remind us of this. Um, I don't know if you can read that, but let me read it to you. It's it's um, reading time with Uncle Brooks. Uh, Romans 1, the Apostle Paul says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you. I love that. I'm not just here for smart people. I'm here for stupid people, too, and that's why I want to talk to you. I don't know if they noticed that, but that seems a little bit cheeky monkey right off the bat at the beginning of his message. Anyway, so that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Now, he is writing to Christians. He's writing to the church in Rome, and he says, I'm so eager to get there and preach the gospel to you to the church in Rome, and then the book of Romans is kind of him reviewing his gospel message, which he wants to get there in person to be able to preach. By the way, this is just a side lesson, but Romans is one of our most theological books written by the Apostle Paul, where he walks through, in a systematic fashion, the things that he believes. He had never met with the Christians in Rome before, Uh, Many of his other epistles are are responding to a crisis or to questions. The book of Romans isn't like that. The book of Romans is kind of his calling card to say I'm the Apostle Paul and here's what I believe. That's why it's a bit more systematic than his other books. And at the end of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul actually tells them finally the reason that he is writing. He says because ultimately I believe God has called me to Spain. He says this, in the last couple of chapters, God has called me to Spain, and I long to go to Spain and preach the gospel, and on my way to Spain, I want to stop off in Rome, and I hope you will feel you know me and my message well enough at that point that I can take up a collection. That's right. And so that you can fund me to go to Spain. And that's why I'm writing to let you know my message, start to finish in a systematic fashion, so you'll feel good about me when I arrive there, you can give me money. Romans is a fundraising letter. <laughs> and yes, so that he can go to Spain and preach the gospel. Now here's the amazing, here's the amazing thing. That's what what Paul thought when he wrote the book of Romans. But Paul never made it to Spain. He was arrested before that trip and killed. So Paul never made it to Spain. But he did write the book of Romans. God was able to use Paul's fervor for evangelism to write one of the most helpful books in the New Testament for understanding the gospel. Wow. Even though the Apostle Paul never even knew why he was writing the book, he actually thought he was writing the book as a fundraising letter so he could go to Spain. Our motivation for evangelism may never always accomplish the things we think we're going to accomplish, but even when you you think you're going to accomplish A, B, and C, God may say, no, it's X, Y, and Z, and You may not know this, but I'll use it no matter what. When you are motivated by the gospel to do what you do, God will use it and accomplish great things, and you may not even know those things till after you're dead. The apostle Paul died never knowing. He would would say, oh, my fundraising letter. I guess it's useless. But for 2,000 years, we've been benefiting from the book of Romans. You have no idea how God is using you, and especially when you are motivated to talk about Jesus with other people. So he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are Christians. And then in 1 Corinthians, he says, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and upon which you've taken your stand. Now here we have a case where the Apostle Paul was already there at their church and did preach the gospel in person, feels I gotta still write and tell you the gospel all over again, even though you're secure in it and you've taken your stand on it and we're still not moving on for this message. I'm gonna remind you of this message. And then Peter himself says, "I so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. You know it, you live it, and I'm still gonna remind you. And he's talking about the gospel in this context. We One of the ministries we have as a church is the ministry reminding, the ministry of reminding. And so I'm so eager to be a part of the ministry of reminding with you for the rest of this session. Um, at The Meeting House, we talk about the gospel in a variety of ways, but one of the ways we help us remember some of the basics of the gospel is to uh, phrase it in one word, three words, and 30 words. The gospel in one word, three words, and 30 words. It's all the same message, it's just different ways of approaching it. Uh, The gospel in one word, there's a number of words that could uh, vie for the number one spot. What are some words you would think of when you think of the gospel in one word, summed up in one word? Good, grace, good, Love. What else? Shout some out. These are good. Jesus, Jesus excellent. What else? Any, anyone else? These have all been good ones. How, no one said kingdom. Kingdom's good, don't you think? <laughs> I think kingdom's first one are up. Actually, I, I think it's pretty good. Uh, but I think I think uh, Jesus is probably the best. So we had to line up just one word. It would be Jesus. Uh, here's, here's why I would say that, and, and all of those I think are true, in a sense, could be the gospel in one word. I think Jesus captures it all. He captures the grace and the love and the message of the kingdom. Mark's gospel, did you notice we have four things called gospels, even though we have one message called the gospel? There's only one gospel, but there's four gospels. At the beginning of Mark's gospel, he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he, he says, I'm now beginning this thing called the gospel. And then he doesn't go on just to give us a four-point soundbite, he goes on to tell us the whole life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So Mark says, "The whole story I'm about to tell you of Jesus is what I call the gospel." That's based on Mark 1:1. 1, 1. And in fact that verse is why the early church said, we should call these four Greco-Roman biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or Luke could be the first part of a two-part history. He said, this is why we're gonna call these four books about the life of Jesus four gospels. It's because of Mark 1, 1, because Mark calls his a gospel. So the whole life, the whole Christ event is really the gospel. That's why it's worth noting that if we're having a good conversation, we're having a God conversation. Until we're having a Jesus conversation, we're not having a gospel conversation. So if you're talking about God in general, that's wonderful, you should, it's true. If you're talking about love, wonderful. If you're talking about the Bible, beautiful. But until you get into the Jesus zone and you start talking about Jesus, you haven't yet started talking about the gospel. The gospel revolves around the person of Jesus. And so have those good conversations that lead you up to having a gospel conversation. So Jesus is uh, the gospel in one word. There's this other beautiful part that reaffirms this later on in Mark's gospel where he tells the story of Jesus uh, having his feet anointed uh, by a woman in Bethany. You know, she, she pours out this very expensive perfume. You know the story, his disciples start to protest because they think she's wasting the money that she could get if she sold the perfume. And, and Jesus says, hey, she did what she could, let her, let her alone, she's doing what she can do. And then Jesus adds this line, he says, um, for I tell you this, wherever the gospel is preached, this woman's story will be told. What? Really? Wherever the gospel is preached, this woman's story will be told. That means Jesus thought of the gospel as his whole life, including the story of the woman who anointed his feet in Bethany. Because he says, whenever you get through the gospel, you're gonna come across this story. And and if the gospel was just a snappy soundbite, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, and that's all it was, and we never got to the whole life of Jesus, then Jesus wouldn't have been telling the truth, right? In order to make Jesus not be a liar, we would have to present the gospel this way. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He died on the cross for your sins so you can go to heaven when you die. Just place your faith in him. Oh, and there was this woman (laughs) in Bethany, and then we'd have to tell that story just to insert it into the gospel, but Jesus had a sense that the gospel's gonna be about everything to do with his life. He's the centerpiece of the gospel, and that's where we're gonna learn about the kingdom. We're gonna learn about grace and everything else. And so, at the centerpiece of the gospel, we say Jesus. Have Jesus conversations with people. Whenever people are talking about faith in general, religion in general, the Bible in general, God in general, say, that's cool. What do you think about Jesus? And move the conversation in a Jesus direction, you're moving it in a gospel direction. The gospel in three words. Uh, There's also a few that could could, uh, vie for the award for the gospel in three words, but what, do you, what are some that you might think? It's a phrase. Pardon me? Oh, that's nice. The, the beautiful love of the Trinity that we were invited into. I like that. That's good. It's not even close to what I had in mind, and it's wonderful. That's so good. Yes. Anything else? He loves you. Fantastic. Very good. Others? God is love. Oh, I think those are three of the most beautiful words ever penned in the English language. It's four words in the Greek, but in English, three words: God is love. So beautiful. Yes. Anyone else? Something now new. Something now new. Oh, that's nice. An emphasis on the new covenant that's coming right now. I love it. Here's 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 how I would sum up the 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 gospel in three words: Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, 9. You know the passage? If we declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we are saved. If we declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's the first confessional statement of the church. That's the first theological creed of the church. Three words, Jesus is Lord. You've just memorized an entire theological, creedal confession of the early church. Way to go, Jesus is Lord. And he says when we say this, I mean, mean it, we confess it, we go public with our faith, Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, we're saved. Isn't that interesting? One of the things we tell people at the Meeting House is when you submit to Jesus as Lord, you get him as savior as part of the package. Uh, rather than just say pray this prayer so you can be saved, and then later we'll talk about lordship issues, the Apostle Paul kind of reverses the order. (laughs) He says actually submit to Jesus as Lord and you will be saved. So when we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying Jesus, not just Christ, some people use the word Christ, it's a title, and it can be very cosmic, but we say Jesus, so we're speaking of the historical person. The, the, that is who is rooted in history that we know existed. I mean, Greg and Paul Eddy have written a couple of fantastic books about just oral tradition and the historicity of Jesus. And the uh, what were your books on on oral tradition and? The Jesus legend, oh, so good, uh, that really addresses the kind of a did Jesus really even exist kind of, kind of theory that I think are so, so powerful. The word, when we say Jesus is Lord, when we say Jesus, we're, we're speaking of a person who really lived in history. God really entered human history in human form. Uh, Jesus is, not was. So we're not just making a historical declaration, we're talking about a living, ongoing experience now because God raised him from the dead. The apostle Paul will go on to say, Jesus is, the word is, is powerful. Uh, Jesus is and Lord, Lord, that he is our leader, our master, but also Lord is a stand-in word for Yahweh or for God. So he is our leader, our, our Lord, our master, our mentor, but he's also the one who shows us what God is like. When I look at Jesus, I see God. He's a Jesus-looking God, and so I, to say Jesus is Lord is to say a lot. Jesus is my master and my leader, and I follow him because when I see him, I get to know who God is and what God is like. And I submit to that God, Jesus is Lord, is really good news, because if Jesus is Lord, that means those other three beautiful words, God is love, have evidence. God is love, three beautiful words, is an interesting concept that uh, you can't find evidence for until you look at Jesus. If you just look at nature and you say, well, just look at nature around me, I believe God is love, just look at this world, it's so creative and beautiful and wonderful. Yes, but it's also filled with horror and disaster. And you say, but nature, nature's so beautiful, until you look closely. (laughs) Nature is filled with suffering and pain and death and destruction as well. So you get this mixed signal when you look at nature. You say, well, I'll just read the Bible in general. I'll open up the Bible to a page and start reading. It'll show me God is love. Sort of. (laughs) Depends on what page you opened it to and what story you started reading. You see, the Bible also gives us mixed signals until you realize that Jesus is the center of the whole thing then Jesus is the one who gives us the stamped it, no erases. Everything you read in here, interpret it through the Jesus lens. And then you can conclude, God is love. You see? Until you get to the Jesus part and make him central, you're getting mixed signals all over the place. But it's the Jesus we get to know in scripture helps us understand scripture, that it points to the God who is love. So the three beautiful words, Jesus is Lord, help confirm the three beautiful words that God is love. Lastly, the Gospel in 30 words. And we're gonna just camp on the Gospel in 30 words for the rest of this session and the next two sessions. We'll just work through different parts of it, the Gospel in 30 words. I would would parse it out this way. Uh, Jesus is God with us. Come to show us God's love, save us from sin, set up God's kingdom, and shut down religion so we can share in God's life. I'm gonna say it a couple of times. I know you can't necessarily read all of that. Jesus is God with us, come to show us God's love, save us from sin, set up God's kingdom, and shut down religion so we can share in God's life. Now, this uh, this Gospel in 30 Words, by the way, we already know, how many among us are kind of stuck in the Freudian developmental anal stage because you've already counted the words just to see if they are 30 <laughs> words. Well, yeah, yeah, there you are. We know what stage you're stuck in. God bless you, welcome to that club. Uh, <laughs> the This is not just meant to be something that's repeated, but this is a mental hook for us to remember different aspects of the gospel that we can bring into conversations. This is not meant to be something we just walk through and parrot it in a conversation with someone. But there's so many beautiful uh, passages about the gospel, this is a way of helping us sort through it. I mean, a beautiful thing is that the gospel's never parroted exactly the same way twice throughout scripture. There's always different nuances and different aspects to this amazingly big message. And, and, and we can start the conversation in different places. As we look at the next slide, there's different entrance points into the, into the gospel with people. Someone might say, I'm just so fed up with religion. You know, I believe there's a God, but I feel burned by religion. Look what it's doing to the planet. And you say, okay, I know where to start this conversation with someone. Let's talk about the nature of religion and how the gospel actually saves us, not just from our sin, but also from our religion. And we'll, we'll enter the conversation there. Some people might say, I'm just feeling burdened down by my sin, and we can say, or by my failure. They may not call it sin. I just really messed up, and we know where to begin. We talk about the freedom that Jesus brings and forgiveness from our sin. And so there's different entrance points into the gospel when we have the information contained in our head. I think of the Apostle Paul in Acts 17. He didn't have to walk through a prepared speech or even read through scripture. In Acts 17, when he's giving his message uh, at the Areopagus, he he has the message inside him so thoroughly that he kind of starts where they're at. Right? And he then, wherever the, the people are at, the unknown God, for instance, is, he starts there, and he, bring, he starts where they're at, but then he brings them toward Jesus. And the end of the sermon ends with Jesus. So we can have gospel conversations, always starting where people are at, and then we bring them toward Jesus. I have committed to myself, if we reverse the arrows, also just to say, I think every sermon that I preach from now until the day I die, I want to radiate out from some aspect of the gospel. the the something about this core message of Jesus. Um, But now, for this first session, we're gonna look at the first two aspects. First of all, Jesus is God with us. And next to what I'm highlighting, I wanna write a word that suggests the kind of gift that this aspect of the gospel can give us. I'm convinced that that our primary human needs and the primary points of the gospel fit together perfectly. That what the gospel offers is exactly what we need. And fear is one of those things that motivates many people. They're afraid of death, but they're just afraid to live. They're afraid of not being liked. They're afraid of, they've got to get, get constant affirmation through social media or other ways that they can just show that they're a valid person. They uh, And when they bring that into a discussion about God, they become afraid of God. That's their starting point. God is mean, he hates me. Sure, I believe in God, and I, I know that he thinks that I'm scum, and there, there may be their starting point. A fear of God that has not yet wrestled with God's care for them may be the starting point. This aspect of God being with us helps open them up to the rest of the conversation. When you enter into a conversation and fear is kind of latently present Uh, Everything you hear, you hear through a defensive lens, and you're not ready to receive the rest of the conversation. But if you can help dispel fear early on, you can open someone up that can relax and listen, really listen to the rest of what what you have to say, what God has to say through his spirit to them. And so this aspect of God being with us, I think provides people the courage to move forward. can we, just slide friends. Slide friends, can you skip forward to Matthew one? The, the first text, fantastic, thank you. We just shaved 15 minutes off the seminar. And believe me, I got three hours of material. You're glad I just shaved three, three minute, 15 minutes off the seminar. Uh, so Matthew one, you know the prophecy about Jesus? All this took place to fulfill. I was talking about the birth of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, that he, 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 was, he was birthed through the power of the Holy Spirit. That somehow, God himself brought about this being called Jesus. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us, Emmanuel. Sometimes spelled with an I, sometimes with an E. Do you know why? Um, one is Hebrew, one is Greek. I wondered that for years. Is it an E or is it an I? I never knew how to sign my Christmas cards. (laughs) I always wanted to say Emmanuel, and then I'd have this crisis of, why do I spell it? One's Hebrew, one's Greek, they're both correct. Knock yourself out. Um, So he he quotes the prophet. Well, in the context, which is Isaiah chapter seven, see, sometimes we think that... um, God with us just means that God became flesh, which is true. It's called the incarnation. God became flesh, which is true. But the primary truth of the prophecy is not God becoming flesh. It's that God is on your side. When it said God with us, it means God is for you, not against you. He wants what's best for you. He's not your enemy. He's not trying to trip you up. He's actually wanting to bless you. In the context of Isaiah seven, we read, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, he says a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Uh, Here's the context, Ahaz is about to go to war, and he is afraid that God is against him in war, and Ahaz is afraid that God is going to, as he has done, used enemies to punish him. So Ahaz thinks I have to make an alliance with pagan nations in order to bolster me, because I'm really fighting against maybe even God. Maybe God's on the side of the enemy. He's not sure if God's on his side. That's the whole context. And Isaiah comes to him and says, God's on your side. Don't worry. You don't have to make an alliance with the pagans. You don't have to do this in your own strength. God's on your side. And in fact, he says, Isaiah says to Ahaz, ask God for a sign. He'll give you any sign you want, just to encourage your heart. And Ahaz says, I'm not gonna ask for a sign. You see this in the next verse, but Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And Ahaz says, no, 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 I'm too holy then to ask God for a sign. I'm not going to test God that way. He is so scared of God. The prophet of God comes and said, God wants to give you a sign. He wants to make it a stamped it, no erases, I love you and I'm on your side. Ask him for whatever sign you need. And Ahaz says, no, no I don't want I, I, I to test God. I don't want to get in more trouble than I'm already in. And so in that context, Isaiah says, now hear now you house of David, it is not enough to try the patience. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? By the way, this is not the God who's saying, "I'm so fed up with you." This is a God who's saying, "I can't believe you keep trying my patience." I'm trying to show you how much I love you, right. and you're not—you're rejecting the sign I want to give you. Yeah. And so, so then he just pushes through and takes the initiative. And Isaiah says, "Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign, whether you like it or not." The Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive, give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In this context, God with you means not just he's present with you, it means he's on your side. God for you, not against you. Take courage. That's why under the new covenant, Hebrews 4.16 can say, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Or some translations say with boldness. Let us approach God's throne of grace with boldness or confidence. That's, that's the new covenant approach to God, not, not the, uh, the old covenant where we're afraid. New covenant, perfect love drives out fear. God is for us, not against us. That is a starting point for the gospel, so we can just encourage people to say, this God brings you this message, not to say, you dirty, rotten sinner, I can't stand you, you're, you're under judgment, but you know, because I'm so good, I'm willing to save you, you scumbag. But actually to say, I care for you enough to pursue you. I love you. When we start the gospel, by the way, with the message of you're a sinner in need of a savior, it's, it's half true, but we've, we've started too late in the Bible because when we preach the gospel starting with you're a sinner in need of a savior, we're actually starting in Genesis chapter three. But there's two chapters before that. Our primary human identity is not I'm a sinner. Our primary human identity is I am an image bearer of God. I was made in the image and likeness of God. I have infinite worth and value to God. Christian or non-Christian, by the way, after we sin, the Bible never says we lost the image of God. In fact, Genesis 9 and the book of James, both Old and New Testament, refer to non-Christians still as being image bearers of God, still valuable. That's why they're worth rescuing. Right. You know, when you tell the story of being lost in um, in Luke chapter 15. You know, there's three stories of lostness, right? There's, what's the first one? There's the lost coin, and then the lost sheep, and then the lost son, right? And that's where we have the prodigal son. It's the third of three lost stories. Well, the thing that these three things have in common is not just that they're lost. Oh dear, you are lost and you need to be found. The first thing all three things have in common is that they're valuable to the one who has lost them. The coin, she was searching for the coin. The story's not, there was a piece of poop that was lost in the house, but this woman, because she was so wonderful, decided to search for the poop and call it precious. She searched for the coin because the coin was valuable. And the shepherd searched for the sheep because the sheep was valuable. And the father searched for the son. And it's the only of the three stories where he didn't go and get it because now you have a human involved and there's choice now. There's choice. So the father searched as much as he could search. He looked and he looked, but he didn't force and bring him. He didn't go and get him by the scruff of the neck and bring him home. But when the son came home, there was reunion and there was rejoicing because he's valuable. So we preach the gospel starting not in Genesis three, but in Genesis one. You are infinitely valuable to God, and he's with you, not against you. That's why the rest of this message means so much to us. Yeah. Amen. Amen. You know, I was raised Pentecostal. Mm. Oh yeah. We had a good service, we had good church. We wore tennis shoes to search just to get a good grip on the wall. It was a good kind of service. I gotta tell you, I love in the amens, This good. This feels like home, this feels like home. Anabaptists, you know, the meeting house we're Anabaptists, we're a quiet bunch. We show our agreement by just nodding politely and smiling and not wanting to interrupt the speaker by making any noise whatsoever. But this is good. Amen, amen. I can get the meeting house to say amen if I ask them to say amen. If I say amen? Then they'll say it like that, that's good. All right, now, second thing I want to cover in this session, how are we doing for time? Doing all right, okay, Uh, is coming back to the gospel in 30 words, we talked about Jesus is God with us, come to show us God's love. Let's just take a look at that now for the next few minutes, and then in subsequent sessions, we'll come back to this and we'll look at save us from sin, set up God's kingdom, shut down religion. let's let's just look at God's love. We've learned that God is for us, not against us. Now I want to push further into that, saying this God who's on your side, he really, really loves you. Like crazy. Isaiah 43, verse one says, do not fear, this is Yahweh talking, do not fear, for I have redeemed you, I have summoned you by name, you are mine. How romantic is that? That is just so, you are mine. And that's, when we enter in times of worship, that's what worship is. It's the beautiful romance of our relationship with God. Think of God, of God who weaves musical expression into our relationship. How romantic is that? When we worship, when you sing a song, you, you, when you worship, you're, this is God saying, you know what I want you to do? I would love for you to just you know, tell me how you feel about me. I mean, I've written you a whole book to tell you how I feel about you. How about you just, you know, tell me how you feel about me. In fact, you know, put it to music. (laughs) Sing me a song. And that's what we do. He has romanced us through Jesus. He has romanced us through the cross. He has romanced us through the words of scripture. Now we get to participate in that romance and say, let's, let us, we're gonna sing you a song. He's way right there. We're just going to tell you how beautiful we think you are, how wonderful and how grateful we are for this relationship. And worship becomes a beautiful place of romance in our relationship with God. We are the bride of Christ, you know. Yeah. And and so we, we we, we enter in. And here's one of those places where God's romancing us. I've summoned you by name, and you are mine. I think he might add baby cakes at the end. And you are mine, baby cakes. It's in the Hebrew. And then in John 15, Jesus puts it this way. In John 15, he says, I no longer call you servants. The servant doesn't know what his his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my Father I've made known to you. So we're like lovers, we're friends. And I love this in Ephesians one, four and five. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, in love, he predestined us for adoption. This was his plan. From before we were even born. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure. In accordance with His pleasure. God was happy when He thought into the future and said, I want to have that. Yeah. Uh, can, I, can I just ask, what's your name? Mira. Mira is your name. Somewhere in the infinite past, God looked forward and said, You know what I would love? I'd love to have a Mira. Yeah. yeah. I think that'd be really cool. In fact, I don't, I don't want to create a universe if it doesn't have a mirror in it. I mean, it's not just Mars, and it's not just uh, you know, Saturn, and it's not just Earth. It, I need a mirror on that planet. And, and, and I need a church. It's not just mirror, it's not just individuals, it's a church, I got a plan, I got this plan. And I want to have, I want to have these people come together as my bride and they're all gonna be different, but they're gonna be united. Yes. Oh, this is gonna be good. Right, so God created, and we've gone through all these eons of, of, of history and suffering and pain, but it was to produce something really beautiful and really wonderful, and we're doing it right now. This, God's got nothing better to do in the entire universe than hang out with us right here, right now, saying, hey, this is that thing that I created the universe for. Yeah. Here it is. Yeah. This is lovely. And, and so, he, and that gave him pleasure, it gave him delight. It was his plan. Now, he executes his plan in this beautiful way, as Greg will provide the details for. He executes this plan in a beautiful way that fully incorporates and understands and makes space for our free choice. Uh, He, because we're made in his image, one of the things that honors the image of God is God is a choice maker, right? It would be weird to say you're made in the image of God, but now he treats you more like a pet than a person. Right? And God already had a planet full of pets. He already had a petting zoo. He said, I want more than pets, I want people. And these persons, these people, will be made in my image and my likeness. It would be strange to be made in the image of likeness of God and then not have the free choice to actually interact with God. And so we've used that free choice to walk away from God, but he has a way of herding cats in a way that we do not. Right? That still allows for our free choice to get us where he wants us to go and there's a lot of pain along the way, and there's a lot of mistakes along the way. But he meets us where we're at, and, and moves us home, in a homeward direction, because it's his pleasure and will. And Paul says in Galatians 2.20, you know the passage, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, the life I now live. By the way, I no longer live. There's a few, in the first sentence, he talks about how the I disappears, I don't live. But then the second sentence, the I is back again. The life I now live, I live. So in one sense, there's an I that is just absorbed into Christ. But in another sense, there's still an I. There's still a me. I'm still making choices and I'm still involved in a relationship and still here. I've been crucified. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. If you just read the first sentence, it could sound like a kind of almost Buddhist being absorbed into the ocean like a droplet of water. You know, I just disappear in the great oneness of God. But... The second sentence says, I'm still here. There's a part of me that's just absorbed in God and disappears into him, or there's a part of me that's crucified and is dead and buried and gone, our sin and our flesh, but there's still an I that's purified and redeemed. I now live in the body that life. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, makes it so personal, and gave himself for me. You know, the Bible, when talking about the essence of who God is, only uses three different words. There's many aspects that describe characteristics of God, but there's only three times in the Bible where it says the essence of who God is. God is spirit, God is light, and God is love. God is spirit, God is light, and God is love. All other things are are characteristics of God, but this describes the actual guts of God, the, the DNA of the divine. God is spirit, God is light, and God is love. And sometimes some Christians will say, yes, God is love. As soon as you say, if you emphasize God is love, they want to agree, but then add the but. Right? Have you had those conversations? You know God is love. And they'll say, oh, I agree, he's love, but, and I want to say, there's no but. There's no but. You can't tell me from scripture there's any but here. Scripture only affirms that God is spirit, God is light, God God is love. And some who know the scripture will agree and say, okay, but he's light. And then under the banner light, they try and import I don't know, righteous holy judgment and wrath. Because he's light, and so that's a red hot fire that burns against your dark sin. Let's we'll say, mm, no. No, light and spirit and love are all describing the same thing. He's not three different parts. Well, that's the love part, and then there's the light part, and then there's the spirit part. God is spirit, God is light, and God is love, and that's describing the same thing. So God is all spirit, and he is all light, and that spiritual light is all love. It's all love. God is all love, God is love. You know the symbol of the yin-yang? Kind of balanced? Yeah, it's a cool symbol, but it's just not a Christian symbol. Because God's not balanced. Not a bit of this and a bit of that. God is love, yes, but he's also righteousness. Well, Well, I know he's righteous, but he is love. Yes, but God is also justice. Well, I know he's a just God, but he is love. Yes, but God is filled with a wrathful fury that, well, I, I, I know that God has wrath, but he is love, yes. you see? So everything else is an expression of that love. So the yin yang is not a Christian symbol. The cross is our symbol. The cross is where we see God's love fully revealed, and it is pure love. Yes. So having said all of this, I want us to take the last few minutes of this session to do some personal assessment. When we read the Bible, do we read the Bible through this lens of the pure love and light of God? Um, or are we still struggling and are we seeing things that aren't there? Have you ever heard of a Rorschach test? Yeah, a Rorschach ink blot test. It's when a bunch of ink is gooed onto a piece of paper and you have to tell the therapist what you think you see and then they tell you whether you have issues with your daddy. You know how that works. I. Th- Here, it looks like something like this. What what do you see there? Birds, eagles, the band, or, no, okay, yeah. All right, you guys are obviously psychologically messed up. We'll move on. What do you see in the next one? A butterfly, or is it, are there two skulls? hmm, Okay, how about, um, uh, skip the next two, they're just repeats. Keep going. There, how about that one? What do you see? Darth Vader, interesting. Or with a monkey on his head with giant symbols? I'm not sure. Um, Okay, next one. Next one. What do you see there? Satan, some say. Uh, Others see Batman. Batman, that's right. For those who see Satan, we have a deliverance ministry immediately following the... Uh, Okay, next one. Yeah, what's the next... Oh yeah. Okay, we'll just move on. That's far too disturbing. Now, okay. So, some of us read the Bible like it's a Rorschach inkblot test. Yeah, you know? it, it, like we're reading into it more of our issues than what God is really trying to say. And and I understand because based on what passage you just kind of cherry pick and start with. It can look pretty frightening, it can look like uh, something, until you start with Jesus. Always start with Jesus, read the Bible backward, read the Bible backward. You know, you start with Jesus, and then you, so the Apostle Paul, when he is preaching to the to, to the pagans in Acts 17, he starts with Jesus, right? He, well, he starts where they're at, leads them to Jesus. If they become Christians, then they go and learn the rest of the Bible. But the gospel is where we start with. Uh, John one eighteen. John one eighteen says, you know the passage, no one has seen God at any time. That's a powerful statement. No one has seen God at any time. Now John knows that the Old Testament is filled with stories of people seeing God. But it's like he's saying, yeah, 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 but until you see Jesus, it's like you haven't really seen God. You just, you know, and and in fact, Moses is the one who's described most intimately, he saw God and was a friend of God, as one talks to a friend face to face, but right after it says that, Moses says, I really want to see your glory, and God says, here, I'm going to put you in a cleft of the rock, and I'm going to keep my hand over your eyes until I pass by, then you can see my back. So even the guy who's described as having the most intimate relationship with God in the Old Testament, as one sees a friend face to face, in reality, only ever got to see the back of God. He, he, even Moses, longed to see the day when he would really fully see who God is. Until you see Jesus, you just haven't really seen God. Very good, true, right? true. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, I love that phrase, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, the word translated bosom here, this is the New American Standard Version. Other versions will say uh, who is in the who is in closest relationship with the Father or who is at the Father's side, which doesn't quite capture it. The Greek word here for bosom means the chest cavity. The, the God who is in God, the Son of God, who is in the chest cavity of God. What's in our chest cavity? Our heart. It's like saying, there There was came a time where God showed us his heart. And it's like he reached down and he, Cracked open our chest, his chest. It just, and a person walked out. And it was Jesus. And Jesus showed us the heart of God. And we had never seen that before or since. If you really want to understand God, look at the, God's heart. That's Jesus, otherwise nobody's really seen God. And, and he says, he has explained him. He has explained him. The word explained there in the Greek is exigeo, exigeo. Where do we, what, what English word do we get from exegeo? Exegesis. What is, or, exegesis means to explain scripture. Right now, to use, use you know, use the word in a sentence class, we could say, uh, Bruxy Cavey is exegeting John 1.18, right? And when we exegete John 1.18, we learn that Jesus exegetes God. Right? Jesus is God's exegetical sermon of himself, So we start and end with Jesus and put everything through the Jesus lens. Having said that now, let's do our own Rorschach test. I'm gonna mention some stories in the Bible and you tell me what you see there. First of all, God in the garden. Now this is your chance. I'm Gonna do some spiritual therapy here. If you wanna lie down on the couch, you're welcome to. But we will close with just seeing where we're at. In the garden. God's walking along. Adam and Eve have sinned and they are hiding in the bushes. And God says, Adam, where are you? What tone of voice do you hear God using? Yeah. Because some people hear, Adam, where are you? But I don't think Jesus, I don't think Jesus lets us get away with that if we really see God's heart in Christ. And then, and then Adam says, oh, you know, I'm here. We were naked, so we hid. And you know, We'll put on these, these fig leaves around us here, which are probably very uncomfortable. Yeah. Prickly. And then God says, what have you done? He says that, to, what have you done? How do you hear that tone of voice? What have you done? Is it like, what have you done? Or what have you done? Jesus helps us hear God, you see in scripture better. And you say, well, yeah, but you're making God so loving. Remember, he did curse them. He curses twice and he never curses his humans. He never curses his image bearers. He curses the ground and he curses the serpent. Right. He never curses his image bearers. That's gotta say something. Yeah. It's gotta say something. And then and they say, okay, sure, maybe he didn't curse them, but he did banish them from the garden. Well, hold on, why did he banish them from the garden? First of all, the word for banish in the Hebrew is the word that's regularly used to send someone off on a journey with blessing. Every other place that's translated in the Old Testament sends them off with blessing. And here it gets translated banish. I'm not sure if that's the best translation. But he does send them out of the garden. Why? Well, to punish them because they were rebe- No, the, the text only gives one, one answer. He says, if we let them stay here, they're going to eat from the tree of life. If they eat from the tree of life, see, they'll be forever frozen in their fallen state. That won't be good for them. The only reason given in the text for God kicking us out of the garden is for our protection, not our punishment. Huh? You say, yeah, well, God, God did kill an animal to show them the high price of sin. Do you see what you made me do? Well, no, the text just says he made them skins of, for clothing because I think the fig leaves were looking pretty uncomfortable, Yes. See, that's more care than condemnation. Yeah, but then you know what he said to Cain. Yeah, he told Cain that sins crouching in your door, you must master. Then Cain went and killed his brother. Then God shows up and what does he do? Cain says, I'm afraid people are gonna kill me because of what I've done. God says, okay, I'll give you a sign to protect you. I mean, that's his response. You see, as we start to work through the Bible, when we have Jesus in the center, our Rorschach start to shift, yeah? And we realize, I think a lot of the heavy-handed, I'm afraid of God stuff is more what I've been told to read into the Bible than what I can really see. And Jesus helps us see what actually is really there all along. Now this doesn't solve every issue. This doesn't solve every passage. There are difficult passages. But Jesus gives us the tool and the lens to go and do that work and to begin to solve those. There's this line in the story of Abraham and Sarah where God comes to Abraham and tells him, a year from now, you're gonna have a son. He comes as a form of three visitors, you remember? And Sarah's in another tent, and when she overhears God saying, you're gonna have a son in a year from now, what does she do? She laughs. And then God hears her laughing and says, why did you laugh? And she says, it says, she was afraid, and so she said, I didn't laugh. To which God responds, yes, you did. (laughs) And that's the end of the chapter. That's how the story ends. And I was preparing a sermon on this and started reading commentaries. How do Christians talk about this? And I was amazed at how many of them talked about the stern rebuke that Yahweh gave Sarah when she laughed in mockery at his plan. He made sure he put her in her place. When she said, I did not laugh, he rebuked her sternly and firmly with a, yes, you did. I said, that's, that's a stern rebuke? She was afraid, so she lied. She thought she had to lie to God to stay on his good side, right? Right? That's what the text does say. Yeah. She, she was afraid of him, so she lied, and so God said, um, you don't have to lie. You don't have to lie for me to, he's, I know you laughed. I know you laughed. Yes, you did is not a rebuke, it's a blessing. I free you up now from lying so that you have to stay close to me. Yeah. I know you laughed, and you know what I'm gonna do in a reaction to your laughing? I'm gonna follow through with my plan and give you a baby, <laughs> and that's it. That's all the text says. And so as you work through these passages of scripture, keep Jesus in the center. Let's wrap it up there. Can I, can I pray for you? Yeah. i love to pray that we, uh, we have a fresh and delightful relationship with scripture because of our fresh focus on Jesus. Yes. All right, okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I love you and I'm so grateful that we can be clear on how much you love us because of Jesus. And I pray that your spirit will help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, you know, the starting point and the finishing point of our faith. Uh, that your spirit will lead us in a Jesus word direction so that when we think of God the Father, we see his heart in you. And when we open up scripture, I know that there are passages that are hard, there are passages that are painful, there are passages that isolated, left on their own, might scare us. But I pray we would never see any passage of scripture isolated from the person of Jesus. And that Jesus, you will adjust our Rorschach, inkblot relationship with scripture. You will clarify and help us see the heart of God in all things that we might see that you are love and that out of that genuine delight, we'll wanna read scripture more with a, with a fresh and exciting uh, perspective and then out of that, we will count it all joy to be able to talk to others about this beautiful gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name and all God people say, amen, amen. amen.